Welcome to Forging Plowshares. We hope you enjoy this conversation and are challenged by it. Please stay tuned at the end of the podcast for a short message about our ministry. In Ephesians, almost every paragraph of the letter is structured around Jesus the Christ, Jesus the Messiah, in some way or other. And so Jesus is continually joined, Jesus the name, to the title, right? Christ is not his last name, Mr. Christ, you know. But because the transcendent Christ joined to Jesus fills all in all, as he says in 1-3. Jesus Christ blesses on earth with heavenly blessings. There is the connection between heaven and earth. He predestined us to adoption as sons through Jesus Christ to himself. That is, we come to God, the Father, through the Son, and the Son then is Jesus Christ. The Father of glory may give to you a spirit of wisdom, Paul prays, and of revelation. And this is where I want to start. Look at verse 18. Our lives and our understanding are to be based on this drawing together accomplished in the conjoining of Jesus Christ. Let's read from verse 18. I pray that the eyes of your heart may be enlightened so that you will know what is the hope of his calling. What are the riches of the glory of his inheritance in the saints? And what is the surpassing greatness of his power toward us who believe? These are in accordance with the working of the strength of his might, which he brought about in Christ when he raised him from the dead and seated him at his right hand in the heavenly places, far above all rule and authority and power and dominion and every name that is named, not only in this age, but also in the one to come. And he put all things in subjection under his feet and gave him his head over all things to the church, which is his body, the fullness of him who fills all in all. Here we see how Jesus and Christ are conjoined in and through the life, the death, and the resurrection. We understand how the human, Jesus, is one with the divine, with the messianic title, focused on cosmic rule, reign over the principalities and powers. This is accomplished in this prayer, and of course this is the prayer that it will be accomplished for us as well, in our understanding. And so he prays that the revelation of the Messiah will be what transforms the church individually and collectively. As he says in verse 18, that the eyes of our hearts will be enlightened. Not just by some outward knowledge, but by a very specific knowledge that goes deep and transforms our worldview, the way that we see everything. Everything looks different when you put on, I believe, the lens of Jesus Christ. One can read the Bible and the the world, you know, we can read that from the wrong perspective, a kind of rationalistic propositional perspective but this doesn't get at the strange new world that we've talked about unfolded in this narrative 
So last week, remember how excited you were last week? I was getting calls all week. Yeah. Uh, about the cosmic dimension of the Christ. I want to make sure this week that we can join the cosmic Christ with Jesus of Nazareth. We need both. The danger in emphasizing the Christ alone and allowing a diminishment of Jesus is that we fall into pure abstraction in which everything and anything is made Christ. Not all visions of the cosmic Christ are equal. And I'm saying this from a kind of historical perspective. I talked last week that there is this cosmic understanding that develops in both the Eastern Church and the Western Church. We've lost it here because of a very specific history in which the cosmic Christ was not conjoined to Jesus. It is the idea that all things are interconnected. And so it's not like a mechanical world. It is a biblical picture in which things cohere specifically in Christ. And so it's the, the universe, the created world. So I'm using the word cosmos very particularly because I think if we say like the term universe, we have a very modern sensibility about the universe. And that is that we tend to break it down into scientific laws. But with the idea of the cosmos is the idea that things are connected, that they're interrelated. He holds all things together. In him we live and move and have our being. And so that's the picture is that Christ is at the center of our understanding of all things. The cosmic Christ, if we do not join that to Jesus of Nazareth, historically what happened in Roman Catholicism, in Franciscan Catholicism, not clear across the board, but in particularly with Duns Scotus, we picture the being of God as if it's the same as the being of the world. We know that's not true, right? Duns Scotus believed we can speak with one voice of water, plant, animals, humans, angels, and God. There's a very popular writer. He's actually a Franciscan priest. Richard Rohr, he is true to his tradition, but he says our DNA is divine. And he says that we need to let the historical Jesus be diminished and displaced by the cosmic Christ. I think we need both. Without the story of Jesus tied to the person of Christ, we might imagine, as Richard Rohr says, that we're connected to everything inherently, objectively, metaphysically, ontologically, theologically. In some way, God's being and our being are not different. And so I like in part what Richard Rohr is doing. He's trying to re-enchant the universe and say, give us this sensibility that in him we live and move and have our being. We need to have that sense. But unfortunately, he's giving us the formula that I believe is behind the disenchantment. Because what you get in the history of Western thought beginning with Duns, Scotus, and William of Ockham. The history that we've inherited, they're important people because the sensibility that we have is one that we've inherited from them. And that is that God has in some way 
been excluded from our world. Just our sensibility of things. It may at one level sound good. Oh, the creature is completely interwoven with the Creator. Yes, that's true. But if we do not understand that they are distinct, historically, the reality is that we lose both God as Creator and God as Redeemer. And so it gives us what we have, a kind of mechanical, secular world. Individualism, you know, that we get in the Enlightenment, the Industrial Age, a kind of desacralized universe in which Christian theologians have put aside this kind of living cosmology. That's what we mean by cosmos. But of course it was not only the cosmos, but man himself became a kind of machine. Literally Descartes pictured animals as if they were mechanical. A famous story is that there's a group of Cartesians walking on the bank of, in, in Paris along a riverbank and one of them kicks, kicks a dog in the, in the stomach as hard as he can and his friends are shocked and he said well it's we all know now after Rene Descartes it's just a, a machine. It's, the animate world is made unimportant and the Christian West has become more interested in itself than in God or the fate of non-human creation and what we mean is souls going to heaven. And very often the connection of Jesus being reduced a kind of focus on the cross or Christologies that have emphasized Jesus' death. I'm not meaning to de-emphasize it, but where that's the only thing, you know, the nature of Christ or the, the life of Christ are often left out as kind of incidental. A lot of Christians imagine you can have faith in Christ and not have the ethics of Christ. That's a byproduct of what we're talking about. What did Jesus, if you had to just count the verses, what did he mainly talk about? And I think his emphasis is actually not about himself. It's about the kingdom of God. Where is the kingdom of God? Well, we believe the church is the kingdom of God. And so we've been left with a kind of vapid theology of the church. So in verses 17 to 19, we see this emphasis then on this renewed wisdom and revelation, the divine unveiling of God's plan and the method which that plan is being worked out, you know, in the body of Christ. Body of Christ, synonymous with the church. And so many Western Christians have been robbed because they think of a, a disembodied heaven and then they wonder, well, what do you do with the word resurrection? Can it possibly fit in a Christianity in which, well, we're all just dying and going to heaven? No, it doesn't fit. We lose sight of our hope and God's power. This is what Paul's saying. Here, he uses the, the phrase, look at it again, far above all rule. He's using four different words for power. All rule all authority, power, and dominion. Every name that is named, not only in this age, but in the one to come. How did this come about? It was put into subjection under his feet. He is head, he is the ruler, in and through the resurrection, in his body, the fullness of him who fills all in all. Now actually, Paul is making a reference here to Psalms 8. This was always the hope 
You know, it's specifically talking about Christ, but look at Psalms 8. It's just talking about the purposes of humanity in God. When I consider your heavens, the work of your fingers, the moon and stars which you have ordained, what is man that you take thought of him, and the son of man that you care for him? Yet you have made him a little lower than God, and you crown him with glory and majesty. Who's he talking about? He's talking about humanity, but of course it's Christ that fulfills this role. You make him to rule over the works of your hands. You have put all things under his feet. We need to understand that this is not simply a reign over some kind of invisible, intangible forces. It's a picture of the world, right? And our interaction with the world. It is cosmic. That's what we mean. But we also mean that it's social. It's a kingdom that Paul is describing. It's political. It's cultural. When we think about the church as the new Israel, Israel was a political group of people a social group of people, a cultural group of people. The church is not less than that. It embraces all of that. It's a fulfillment of that history. And so putting Jesus with Christ, our practical, our local, our real world circumstance, maybe just our little lives, our small lives, they are affirmed in the life of a man born in Israel with an unimportant city whose parents were unknown, unimportant. In other words, there's an affirmation of the particulars of our own life that it makes sense and lends importance then because we see how it's linked to the cosmic world, that it's the interpersonal workings of God. The cosmic powers are made subject to Christ. What does this mean? It means that we do not need to live according to the principalities and powers of Rome, of America, of the modern worldview. Some of that may be good, but some of it is, has a sensibility that we want to not be controlled by. And so Ephesians, I believe, takes on empire. But the way empire is deposed is very interesting. It's like, you know, think of the little letter, Philemon. Just the shortest letter, one of the shortest letters in the New Testament. It's a letter from Paul to Philemon about a runaway slave, Onesimus. Onesimus is a Christian. Philemon is a Christian. And Paul is saying this is the overriding factor in your lives. Onesimus is like a son to me, Paul says. And if that's the case, Philemon, he should be like a brother to you, not a slave. The way that Paul takes on empire, I believe the way that Christianity takes on empire, we don't get out, go out and get nuclear weapons. and No, but we undermine the slavery, the control, the principalities and powers in the way that we do human relations, culture, society, in the church. In that sense, then, we are to be a peculiar people. And so the problem is deciding what sort of world do we live in? And where is the meaning of our world generated? Will we let 
you know, in the first century, would we let Rome in this century, would we let America set the parameters of our values or our values in Christ? And so Paul knows the reality of dealing with principalities and powers. He's in prison. So he knows all about principalities and powers, but he's not controlled by them, even though they have him in prison. We don't know which imprisonment this is, whether it's one in Ephesus or one in Rome, but eventually they're going to cut off his head. Does that mean he loses and Rome wins? Not at all, because the same thing happened to his Lord and Master who also was crucified by the powers. That's the point, that Christ is raised from the dead. The power that empire can control us by is defeated in the resurrection of Christ. The principalities and powers, he says, are under the control of Christ who reigns from heaven. And so 7 to 10, God has made known to us the mystery of his will. What is this? What, what is his will? Well, we know that there is an exodus, not simply like the exodus of Israel from Egypt, but now there is a rescue from the dark power of the principalities and powers that the New Testament calls sin. So sin is not simply failure to do the good. It has to do with the principles, the values that are put upon us. It is a worldview that constitutes what is called sin. It is being caught up in darkness and deception. And defeating these powers then, it's not a matter of, oh, we're going to flee or escape. Maybe we can all go be Amish or go to heaven when we die. No, the idea is that right now, the powers are under our control. They do not manipulate us. They may kill us. That's always a possibility. And so Western Christians, you know, that we've made the inheritance too small and too future. Paul makes it clear that the inheritance concerns the whole new creation, a new heaven, a new earth, which are conjoined to Christ Jesus. And so for Paul, Christ is Jesus. The reality of the one is inseparable from the other. It is not that Jesus is one phase of the making of Christ. As if God has a series of events in his life. And one of those series was, oh, well, then there's that whole Jesus thing. The truth of God, the truth of the world is found in the incarnation. And so what Ephesians and John and the New Testament are conveying is, I'll say this and listen carefully. God has no story but that of Jesus of Nazareth. It is not that the pre-existent Christ and God have a story, a divine story, other than the story of the incarnation. But we need to define the word story here. There is no succession in God. There's no unfolding of history in God. This is a common question. What was God doing before he created the world? Augustine said, well, he was making hell for people who ask stupid questions. But I think that it's a wrong-headed question because eternity is not time. It's not, oh, eternity, that's a long time. No, eternity is above, beyond. Eternity is not time at all. Eternity is timeless, and so is God. 
Eternity transcends time. And speaking of the Son of God becoming man or coming down from heaven, the New Testament uses that imagery. It's a perfectly good metaphor, but it's not literally true for God is outside space and time, up and down, before and after. They're not part of who he is. That's part of created reality, which he controls. And so Paul is taking us into the very heart of who God is. Paul tells us that this is who God is before the foundation of the world. This was preordained in who God is. It pertains, as Paul describes it, to who God is in himself in verse 9. Having made known to us the mystery of his will according to his good pleasure which he purposed in himself. Who is God? This is telling us that we have access to who God is. The incarnation. It's not just the story of God's involvement with his creatures, but it is actually the story of God. That is, we really come to know who God is in Christ. It's not simply an image or a metaphor or... No, but in Christ we encounter God. And in one sense, God has no story or no temporal narrative. But there is also the sense then in which the life story revealed in the the incarnation, that is the only story that God has. That is the story of Trinity. The story of Jesus is the enactment of the triune God. But this is not an event in time. This is an eternal fact about who God is. This is the story. And this is our access to who God is. And so my my point here is a very tiny point with a lot of heavy thought behind it. To imagine that we can diminish Jesus and focus on the cosmic Christ is to lose the story of God. You know, last week I used the illustration of the Vitruvian man. The man in 16 different poses. And what Leonardo, or actually Vitruvius, before him, what they were attempting implicitly in the Vitruvian man was to describe the cosmos. But they're describing it in a new way. I believe in a wrong way. You know, they're taking the same idea of the coherence of all things that we presume in Christianity, but they sought this coherence within the human frame alone. Literally, the human body. The secularizing element was to arrive at an abstraction of man taking the ratios of the body and saying, well, here are the secret mathematics that will give us the secret of the universe. They're taking an abstraction, not of any particular man, but of the perfect man, the ideal man. And apparently he's European and he's white and probably from Italy. The Vitruvian man, in representing the dimensions of the human body, is focused then on this kind of disincarnate mathematical dimensions. And so in displacing the Vitruvian man with what I'm calling the cosmic Christ, there is an acknowledgement of coherence, a readability of the universe, but without the singular focus on mathematics, on abstractions, on mechanics, without the chauvinism, without the privileging of white European males. There is an appreciation for a recapturing of a classical focus, certainly on sight, 
You know, this is the amazing thing about Leonardo da Vinci, that he's seeing the world, but at the same time, there is a desensitizing, a turn away from the auditory, from revelation, found in the historical Jesus. So it is telling, they have Leonardo's notebooks, and a lot of his notebooks sound like Richard Rohr. In a notebook from 1492, Leonardo mused, by the ancients, man has been called the world in miniature, and certainly the name is well bestowed, because inasmuch as man is composed of earth, water, air, and fire, his body resembles that of the earth. But what he's saying is the universals are within, and the divine need play no part. Richard Rohr similarly extends the eminent frame he says, we can speak with one voice of being of waters, plants, animals. But he just extends it and says, yes, and we can include God. We may think, oh, this is an affirmation of the material world. The imminent presence of the divine with this univocal being, I think it just is an empty abstraction. And our world is emptied of God. So there is an equilibrium contained in the name of Jesus combined with Christ in which the cosmic pre-existent reality is made specific and accessible through the incarnate Jesus. Thank you for listening to this episode of Forging Plowshares. You can learn more and join our growing community by visiting forgingplowshares.org. Please consider supporting at patreon.com slash paulaxton or by donating at forgingplowshares.org slash donate.